Hey, we're going to continue our Advent series this morning. You guys doing okay? How was that weather yesterday? I got the privilege of spending it with Brian Williams in a metal shed behind the church office as we saw the apocalypse happening right there. Lightning struck right behind the barn. Brian started confessing his sins. It was beautiful. I, pretty much. He held me like a baby. It was, it was beautiful. Hey guys, we're going to be in the book of Isaiah again. Brock preached out of Isaiah, I think maybe chapter 2 last week. We're going to be in Isaiah 55. Okay, and, and let, me, let me just say this, and I try to remind you guys of this. Anytime I preach from the Old Testament, when we preach from the Old Testament, we are looking for whispers of Jesus. Okay, because we don't live under that law anymore. Jesus fulfilled that law. We don't look to the Old Testament for promises because we have better promises with Jesus. Okay, but we are going to look at Isaiah 55 because it whispers, almost shouts of Jesus. And so as we look at Advent, there are four major themes that if you go to pretty much any Bible teaching church and they observe Advent, there are usually four themes. There's love, joy, peace, and hope. All of those things are present in this passage. Only 13 verses. We're going to divide it into three sections. And I really don't have, like, I can't say, Ron Rahel, I'm sorry, man. I don't have alliteration. I can't give you the outline in advance. I'm just going to try to teach the Bible today, okay? So that's kind of that's my game plan. See, this passage represents the words of God through the prophet Isaiah to the children of Israel back in the day based on their current circumstance. There were exiles coming back from Babylon and Babylonia and he's talking to them about their current situation but ultimately he's talking about a messianic prophecy. He's talking about what Jesus is ultimately going to do for all of us. It's all right here in this passage, okay? Sometimes it's hard to tell if you read this. And I went into Brock's office earlier this week because I was just, I've just kind of been marinating in this passage for about a week and a half. And if you've heard me speak before, context matters to me. Like you can't just parachute into the Bible and land in Isaiah 55 not knowing anything about what's going on and think that you're smart enough to figure out what's going on. I'm not. Maybe, maybe you are. But see, this passage is God, it seems to be God, the Word of God, the voice of God speaking directly to His people. But I was confused because I don't, you can look at your Bible and you can see what I'm talking about. This is not the main point, but you, I spent like a day, like getting all tied knots about this thing because like verse 55, or chapter 55, verse 1, do you, what's the first thing you see there? Does anybody see like quotes right there at the very beginning? If you, if you go down to a little further, you never see those quotes end. Like at the very end of the chapter, the quotes end. But like quotes start in verse 1, but then they never end and they start again in verse 6. And then they never end and they start again in verse 10. And then again in verse 12. And so I'm like, God, are you talking or are you not talking? Is Isaiah talking or are you talking? And so I go into Brock and I say, can you make this make sense to me? And he says, Mark, are you stupid? That's usually how our conversations begin. And to which I'd say, yes. And he, he said this, don't worry about it. In the Hebrew text, the punctuation wasn't there. The chapter numbers, the verse numbers, none of that was there. This is a translation trying to make sense of it, but they didn't do a great job right here because I really wish the quotes would end. So I would know. So we're not sure exactly in this passage if it's God speaking directly, or if it's Isaiah speaking for God. Okay, so that's, that's uh, my caveat. We're going to divide this into three sections. The first section is verses 1 through 5. This is your outline, Ron Rejo. Verses 1 through 5 is the first section. Verses 6 through 9, the second section. And verses 10 through 13, the third section. Deep spiritual stuff right there. Are we ready? Ready to get after this? We're not having a service on the 26th, so I guess I can preach twice as long today, right? 
If you're a guest at Whitestone, aren't you glad you came? Aren't you just so glad? Hey, section 1, verses 1 through 5. Listen to this. This is really good news. This is what the text says. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Verse 2, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Verse 3, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Verse 4, Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that you do not know shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. The first thing I want you to see in this passage is this was God's invitation to the children of Israel to return to Him, to come to His table, to taste and see that the Lord is good. He had a table laid out for them. And it's an invitation. It's the best invitation in Scripture, unless you consider ours. He invites them four times. He says, come. Four times in the first three verses. He's asking them to return to Him. But see, in the context of Jesus, it's an even better invitation. Because He's done all the hard work for us. And He invites us to come to His table. These words, you know how I know these words are important to Jesus? They're close to His heart. Look at some of the last words in the Bible. The very last thing that Jesus says in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. Read these words that we on the screen and then tell me that this is not screaming the name of Jesus when we read it in Isaiah. Revelation 22, 17. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, Come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. It's a pretty good paraphrase of what we just read in the book of Isaiah. See, God was calling Israel back to Himself, but today Jesus is calling you and me to Himself. If that's not true, then it doesn't matter how many times we sing, have yourself a merry little Christmas, it doesn't mean diddly. If we are not invited to the table, it is not a celebration for you. You understand that? The good news is all of you are invited to the table and it doesn't matter your status in life. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter if you think you've got your life together. It's, do you want to come? Do you want to come to me? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all you who are weak. Does it qualify? Anyone in here? All you who are weak, come to me. All you who are heavy laden, who are carrying the burden of past mistakes, of broken relationships, of wreckage in your past. He doesn't care. Come to me. All you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I've been having a hard time sleeping for the last little while. Maybe it's just because I'm getting older and the bathroom is calling my name at night. That's a big part of it. But it's like, for the last little while, it's like every time I close my eyes, like my brain won't shut off. Anybody have that going on? It's like you just have thought after thought, dream after dream, some of you are in my dreams. I won't tell you about them. They're not gross or anything, but they are kind of weird. Sometimes I just think, gosh, I love watching baby Cole. Have you met him? It's my grandson. 
when he goes to sleep, he goes to sleep. Like he rests. Like, have you ever just wanted to sleep like a baby again? Somebody else is going to take care of everything. Jesus has come to me. If you're weak, if you're burdened, I'll give you rest. All that stuff you're carrying around, let me carry it for you. That's the invitation of Advent. If you've never met Him, let today be the day that you take Him up on that invitation. Most of you, because you're, I know most of you, you've met Him. But have you wandered from Him? Does He not feel as close, maybe, as He used to feel? His invitation to you today is to return to Him. Maybe like Revelation 2, 4, and 5, maybe you already know Him, and maybe He's, recall, he's, he's calling you to return to your first love. To remember the heights from which you've fallen. Anybody ever pray this? I've I, I said this before. Do you ever pray, God, will you just restore the wonder of this again? I hear people say that about Christmas. There's all kind of Christmas songs. Let me see Christmas like a child. Have a bigger dream. Let me see Jesus like a child. Because he says, unless we come to him with the faith of a child, we'll never see the kingdom of God. It's not about theology. It's not about knowing all the right answers. It's about knowing Jesus. Experiencing His love and giving it back to Him. Loving Him because He first loved us. Maybe that's you today. What is Jesus offering with this invitation? In this passage of Scripture, what's He offering? Can I just confess to you, I'm not a big wedding guy. We get an invitation to a wedding, and my wife, Angie, she's just like, woo I'm thinking, gosh, really? You know, I love you guys. And if you ask me to do your wedding, I'll do your wedding. But I'm not enjoying it. It's just not my favorite. It's so much pressure. But I tell you this, one thing I do enjoy about weddings is when they do the reception right. You know what I'm talking about? Really good food. Mom, if you're watching, forgive me for this. The open bar. This isn't a Baptist church, okay? I'm not saying go get all liquored up at a wedding, but I am saying especially after a stressful wedding, it's not a bad thing to have some of that, that wine that Jesus turned, you know, that water that he, you know, that was his idea, not mine. It's hard to beat, you know, when somebody says, just come to the table and it's just lavish food. And you just, I mean, that's a picture. Times a thousand, times a million of what Jesus is inviting you into. What's he offering on this table? It's right there in the first verse. He says, there's going to be water. There's going to be milk. And there's going to be wine. All three of those things represent something bigger than water, milk, and wine. Water represents life. He's saying, come to my table and find life. Jesus called himself living water. He, he, to the woman at the well in John chapter 14, he says, hey, if you drink this water, if you would have known who I am, you would have asked me for water and I would give you living water that would spring up in you, become a spring welling up. That's kind of funny. I just realized that. This, this week as I was kind of studying that passage, he's, he's meeting the woman at the well and she's saying, how are you going to draw water from this well? The well is deep and you don't have a jar. And Jesus says, I don't need no stinking jar. 
I got living water I could give you that would well up. Well, like the well will be inside you and it will spring up to eternal life. It's the first thing that's on his table. When he's saying, come, if you're thirsty, come drink living water. He says, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. What's milk represent? Milk represents nourishment. If we read in, in the book of 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says this in verse 2, like newborn infants desire pure milk of the Word so that you may grow up into your salvation. See, Paul talked about, a lot about baby Christians. Like just hanging out with milk when you need solid food. Guys, if, I, if we can just get some milk down us, we will grow up into our salvation. But so many people think they can just stop with the water. I, I prayed the prayer. I asked Jesus into my heart. And I hadn't done diddly squat with it since. Jesus has come to my table and find water, find life. But then find something to nourish you, to help you grow up into your salvation. And then he says the words that Baptist preachers all over the world try to, try to preach against and explain away. Come have some wine. What does wine represent here? See, at a wedding in Cana, Jesus' first recorded miracle, they run out of wine. And he takes some water and he turns it into wine, not cheap wine, not box wine, really, really good wine, the kind of wine that none of us could afford to buy, jars of it. Why? So their celebration could continue. See, there are so many people in the world who believe the Bible and they're mad about it. And because it doesn't fit the tradition, the tradition that you grew up in, you just kind of shun people for enjoying what God made. Now, in context, he says in, Paul says in Ephesians, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. See, the problem in our world is that the wine becomes primary when it was never meant to be primary. Jesus is primary. but He wants us to enjoy our lives. Wine represents joyful celebration. So His invitation to you is to come, come buy water, milk, and wine without cost. If you have no money, it doesn't matter. He's providing everything. It's like that great wedding. And by the way, there is a wedding feast coming the wedding feast of the Lamb. And if you know Jesus, you've got a ticket. You get to sit at that table. This is a precursor for that. Come. Come. Buy without money and price. See, the invitation to come to His table and buy without money and without price means it's free to us. By the way, if it wasn't free to us, we couldn't afford it. Because although it cost us nothing except accepting the invitation, it cost Jesus everything. Absolutely everything. Just because it's free to you does not mean it's cheap. There is nothing cheap about what Jesus did for us. John Flavel is an old-time Puritan pastor. And he, he writes this imaginary conversation from eternity's past between God and Jesus in heaven. And I can't tell you for sure it went down this way, but you can't prove it didn't. And so this is what John Flavel says. And he kind of writes it in the Old English, so I'm going to sound smarter than I am, unless I mispronounce the words. The Father says, My son, here is a company of poor Miserable souls. They have utterly undone themselves. And now they lay open 
to my justice. And justice demands satisfaction for them. Or justice will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? The son replies, O my father, such is my love and pity for them. Rather than they perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all thy bills that I may see what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all in that there may be no after-reckonings with them. At my hand shalt thou require it. I will rather choose to suffer thy wrath than they should suffer it. Upon me, my Father, upon me be all of their debt. The Father replies, But my son, if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay the last cent. Expect no discounts. If I spare them, I shall not spare thee. The son replies, Content, father. Let it be so. Charge it all to me. I am able to pay it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, yet I am content undertake it. The invitation to God's table for you and for me is not cheap. It costs Jesus everything. And He willingly left the throne of heaven to come as a baby born in a manger to live a perfect life, to go to the cross, to be sentenced to death to die that death, bearing all our sin, not the sins that you've already done. Because this was 2,000 years ago. This was every sin for all time for all who would receive Him. You stand justified before God because of that act of Jesus. That is the Gospel. That is why we celebrate Advent. He then moves on and he asks them a question. He says, in verse 2, he says, hey, why do you spend your money on things that aren't bread? Why do you labor for things that don't satisfy? It's a great question. It's a great question for you and me today. Anybody gone shopping this week? The last couple of weeks? You ever get home and you look at all that stuff and you think, what the crap? Especially if you have little, little kids. Like, we're buying presents for Cole. And he, he would rather have the tissue paper. You know? But it makes us feel good. Why do we spend money on things that aren't bread? Why do, why do we labor for things that don't satisfy? Do you ever just work yourself to the bone all day and look back at the end of the day, and you ask the question, did anything I did today matter for eternity? That's the question. Because we get caught up in this. We get caught up in this. Raymond Ortland Jr. in his commentary on Isaiah said this about this verse, Our world is a vast marketplace of unsatisfying but costly remedies for our God-shaped longings. Our world is a vast marketplace full of unsatisfying but costly remedies for the God-shaped longings of our heart. The author of Ecclesiastes said it this way, that God, when He made us, set eternity in the hearts of men. But He didn't give us the capacity to understand it from beginning to end. Let me, let me say, I've said this before, I'll say it again because I think it's true. Every one of you, even if I don't know, know your name, if I've never seen you before, I know this about you. You are an image bearer of God. You were created in the image of God. And that means I need to love you. And we should love each other. That's why racism sucks. Because people don't look like us exactly. We think that they're not image bearers of God. Horrible. Look deeper than that. 
in your heart and in my heart, there is a God-shaped hole. It's eternity. A longing for eternity. And you can look the world over and over again and not find anything except Jesus to fill that hole. It's true. So why do you labor for things that are never going to satisfy you? It's a question that I can't answer for you. What should we do instead? Instead of spending and laboring for things that don't satisfy, he gives us some real practical advice. He says this, listen diligently to me. Listen, who's me? In the Old Testament, Yahweh. In the New Covenant, Jesus. Listen to Jesus and eat what is good. Stop filling your lives with things that are just sparkly for a second and rot the next second and become poison to your soul. Eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Guys, the invitation is to taste and see that He is good. It's not like God is doing like my mom used to do to me with lima beans. Eat them, they're good. No, they're not. They're ginormous and they're bitter and I don't like them. A lot of us think about religion that way. It's ginormous, it's bitter, and I don't like it, makes me feel bad. That's not Jesus. That could be religion, it could be your church experience, but it's not Jesus. It's not Jesus at all. Listen diligently, eat what is good. See, He invites you to taste and see that He's good. It's not so bad, right? Nobody has to, to put a bowl of bluebell cookies and cream ice cream in front of me and beg me to eat it. Because once you taste it, you don't have to convince me. I don't have to convince you. Some of you love coffee. I don't get it. I'm trying, but I don't get it. But for some of you, it is like the sweet nectar of heaven. You crave it. You pay $8 a cup for it. And learn a whole new language just to order it. <laughs> I don't get it. But you taste it. And you decided for yourself that it's good. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And then he goes on and he says this in verse 3. Incline your ear. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Incline your ear. This is what I think that means. Like, what, what was that? It's like you're trying to have a conversation in a loud restaurant with your wife. You can't hear what she's saying. She thinks you should be able to hear what she's saying. This is hypothetical. And so you kind of lean in you incline your ear. Guys, maybe it's time for us to lean in to what God's saying. Because it's not enough to listen. See, Anthony, you've done this a lot. I know you have. Cody, I know you've done this. It's kind of like your pet peeve. Like any musician, they don't want to be like dinner music. Right? Like you're playing and you're thinking, I'm killing this. And everybody's just talking. I mean, they're, they're listening kind of. But they're not really hearing, right? It's like, this is also hypothetical. Husbands. <laughs> Have you ever heard words like this? Are you hearing me? I'm listening. But are you hearing me? Listening. See, we can listen mindlessly to background noise, right? But are we really hearing Jesus says, practically, listen diligently, but hear what I'm saying. Hear that your soul may live. Hear what? Hear this invitation. 
the basis of this invitation is twofold. For the, for the Israelites, it was, it was based on this covenant blessing that, that God made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. See, Saul had messed up and he had not followed the rules and so God removed the kingdom from Saul and gave it to David and he made this promise to David and he said, hey, your, your kingdom will never end. It was based on that and this Old Testament covenant that God made with Moses and, and said, hey, if you'll do this and you'll do this and you'll do this, all these sacrifices, and you'll walk in my ways and you'll obey my commands, then I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the Old Testament covenant, okay? That's why the law came, to help them keep that covenant. But then Jesus came, he fulfilled all that law, and he said, I have a new command. Love one another like I've loved you. That's the new covenant, okay? Twofold. Here, God's talking to the Israelites about that covenant. But today, you and me, Jesus is saying this on the basis of His covenant with us, which He fulfilled all that law through His coming, His living, his dying, His resurrection, His forgiveness. Through all of that, He adopted us as sons and daughters into His family. See, that's the basis of the invitation. And this is how they're tied together. Raymond Ortland said it this way. God made a pledge to David. King Saul had failed. So God replaced him with David. But God promised David that his dynasty would rule forever. Human failure could not destroy the covenant. It was factored into the covenant. How does this benefit us? Jesus Christ is the heir of the Davidic crown. And he's our true king if we will have him. And God is committed to the eternal triumph of the throne of Jesus. Not even death could stop Him. He cannot fail. He covers the failings of all His subjects. That's you and me. Every time you mess up, He's already covered it. And God will never back out of this arrangement. He calls it an eternal covenant by my steadfast, sure love for David. It's a lot in the first section. The next two sections go a lot quicker. Too bad it's 12 o'clock. Good thing y'all aren't hungry or anything. I'm going to go quick. Section 2, verses 6 through 9. This is what it says. This is important. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. The first thing he tells us here is that it's not just an invitation, people. It's an urgent invitation. There is an RSVP on this invitation. This is not just show up when you want to, because you know what? The invitation doesn't last forever. Sometimes we think it does. We think that God lives His life based on our timing. That's not true. See, the implication of seek the Lord while He may be found, call upon Him while He is near, means that He won't always be near. We are not promised tomorrow. As much as I would like to stand here and say, hey, you got another shot at this tomorrow, I have no clue. A couple of nights ago I went to sleep and I wake up to find out 70 to 100 people died in Kentucky because of one storm. You think they went to bed thinking that was on the radar? Genesis 6 3 says, God's Spirit will not always strive with man. James chapter 4 14 says, you, don't, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are like a mist, a vapor 
that appears for a little time and then vanishes. This sense of urgency reminds me of a parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 22 when a king wants to throw a wedding party for his son and he tells his servants, go out and invite everybody, invite all these people. And all of them came back and said, we're busy. So the king says, okay, you do you. I want you to go to the highways and the hedges and find the least of these and bring them in. Because those other people missed their chance. Accept the invitation when you get it. When you feel the Lord speaking to you, don't assume that there'll be a next time. Because we never know. What is God asking you to do? Besides seeking Him while He's near, it says this, forsake your wicked ways. Forsake. What are your wicked ways? Well, they're your ways. <laughs> Sometimes I amaze myself with the depth of my knowledge. It's the way you live. It's your behavior. It's your attitudes. Forsake them. If they don't honor God, forsake them means get away from them. Change them. Forsake your wicked ways and your unrighteous thoughts. Because this is, this is um, okay, how do you say this? Um, there are a lot of church people that this is their go-to. They're good at forsaking wicked ways, the outward stuff. But the unrighteous thoughts, the stuff inside us that no one can see, are we... Are we cleaning the inside of the cup as much as the outside of the cup? The invitation is, seek the Lord, forsake your wicked ways and your unrighteous thoughts. Hmm. In my experience, forsaking wicked ways and unrighteous thoughts is not a subtle change. Be honest with yourself. Even though it's 1203. Be honest with yourself. Have you ever heard God speaking to you and He's calling you to take a, take a radical step towards Him, but you rationalize in your mind, I don't need to remodel the whole house. It's a subtle change. No one else has to know this. This is between me and God. My faith is personal. Your faith is personal, but it's meant to be lived out in community. See, in my mind, forsaking wicked ways and unrighteous thoughts, rather than being a subtle change, more lines up with that great theologian Miley Cyrus. He came in like a wrecking ball. It's violent. It's we say here, we want to worship at the place where love and desperation collide. Have you seen a collision lately? They're messy. They're violent. They're dangerous. Guys, it may take a step of radical obedience. I've seen this to be true. I know this to be true. Subtle changes that you, you, you commit to in your heart and you never let anyone else in, more times than not, the noise of the world drowns them out. But once you ring that bell that you can't unring and you take a radical step towards God in obedience and you put yourself at risk of collision... That's where beautiful stuff happens. And some people in this room know that to be true. You know it to be true. Because you've experienced that way. It's not fun. But James in, ch in chapter 5 verse 16 says, Confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. 
See, the, the power of shame and guilt and sin is in the secrecy of it. Once you drag it out into the light and, and beat the hound out of it in front of people, it's not so scary anymore. It's just not. Why, do, why should we do this? Why should we forsake our ways and our thoughts? He tells right here. Because His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. They're better than our thoughts. His ways are better than our ways. His plan is better than our plan. See, oftentimes, I think this is true. God is content to let you run with your own plan until you come to the end of your plan. Because until you get it out of your system... You're just going to keep thinking your ways are better than His. He says clearly, my ways are higher. My ways are better. But if you think you know better, run with your plan. Get it out of you. Guys, the longer we do that, the more we, like Paul, how long are you going to kick against the goats? How long are you just going to keep ramming yourself into this wall and hurting yourself? Forsake that stuff. My way is better. My way is higher Third section and I'm done. Verses 10 through 13. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it, do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Verse 12, for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar come up the myrtle and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. See, the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it. See, rain and snow are important. Like rain yesterday, I didn't really enjoy it. But truth is, we need it, right? See, back in the day when this was written, Egypt was a big-time country. They had the Nile River. They had a water source. They didn't need rain. They could just go get the water out of the river. The same thing with the Mesopotamians. They had, they had the Tigris River, the Euphrates River. But see, the promised land, Canaan, where God was sending His people, didn't have no river. If they were going to get water, it was going to be rain. And if the rain didn't come, if the water didn't come, people died. See, it was, it was not a steady flow of water. It came as God provided it. It's kind of like faith. Guys, I can't tell you that it's going to be easy. But I can tell you that God is faithful. And if we keep the faith, the rain will come when we need it. But this life requires faith. See, he says in verse 11, so shall my word be. See, God's Word is like the rain. It gives life. See, true life, we can't muster it up. We can't be spiritual enough. We can't just like do this and just kind of strain out spiritual life. It comes from Him. It's a gift. We can't control it. We can only receive it. So when He rains on your life, don't fight against it. Let it soak into you. Let it let you grow. See, in the Hebrew, that word for, for, for word, word, is davah. It's used, it's translated a million different ways in the Old Testament. Like, here's a few. Speech, word, speaking, thing, utterance, occupation, acts, matter, business, manner, chronicles, commandment, and 204 different words. But in the New Testament, the word for word is the word logos. It's in the Greek. Old Testament's in Hebrew. 
New Testament's in Greek. That word logos can mean some of those same things. But there's one huge exception. And you heard it in the passage that April read earlier from John chapter 1, where it says, In the beginning was the Word, Logos. And the Word, Logos, was God, was with God in the beginning. That Word is capital W. And guess what that Word means? It means Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was God, and he was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made that were made. Could it be, this is a foreshadowing of God saying, hey, Jesus is going to accomplish everything I sent him to do. Perfectly and completely. This is the fact, okay? The cause of Jesus Christ will be the only perfect and completely successful cause in all of human history. Donald Trump did not make America great again. I'm sorry. He might have done some stuff, but if that was his goal, that's not really what happened. Anything Joe Biden decides to do and he's going to do it, it's, it's ultimately going to fail because it's not rooted in Jesus. The cause of Christ is the only perfect and complete act in all of human history. That is good news for you because you can't mess it up. All you have to do is receive it. See, all the themes of Advent are found in this passage. Love. It's right up there in verse 3. Joy and peace are right there in verse 12. But what about hope? Well, the word's not in there. But look how the passage ends. An everlasting sign that will not be cut off. Sounds like hope to me. Doesn't it to you? I mean, do you want, if you're going to hope in something, don't you want to hope in something that's everlasting? That doesn't depend on how good you are? I'm going to ask Cody and the band to come back up. I want to close with this thought. If it is true, and I believe it is, that all the promises of Jesus are both true and inevitable. If it's true that we've been invited to His table and in Him we have full pardon. Full pardon, forgiveness. You know one of the stupidest things I think about, about when I think about American politics? Is the presidential pardon. It's like the last thing the president can do on his way out of office is pick some criminals that have been convicted of things, and say, you're free, you're free, you're free. Doesn't even have to give a reason. That's what you get. You get an almighty God pardon. For no reason except that you're found in Christ. If it's true that in Jesus we have full access to unconditional love, full pardon and forgiveness, peace, that passes all understanding, joy unspeakable, hope unshakable for all eternity. If those things are true, then shouldn't it affect the way you handle the fear in your life today? Last week was powerful. If you were here, you guys texted Brock the things you were most afraid of. And we worshiped and Brock stood over there in his big deep voice. He read all those text messages and it was beautiful. I wonder if a week later, if you're still carrying those fears around with you. Because it takes more than a subtle change to break those shackles, to break out of those prison cells that we make for ourselves. I want to close this morning by reading this quote from Peter Kreef's book, Heaven, The Heart's Deepest Longing. He says, Now suppose both death and hell Will, were utterly defeated. And they, be, they will be one day. Suppose the fight was fixed. Suppose God took you on a crystal ball ride into your future. And you saw with absolute certainty that despite everything, your sin, your smallness, 
your stupidity, your habitual sin. Despite all of that, you could have, free for the asking, your whole crazy heart's deepest desire. Heaven. Eternal joy. God takes you and He shows you the future. And you realize it's all true. Would you not return fearless? Singing? What can earth do to you if you're guaranteed heaven? To fear the worst earthly loss would be like a millionaire fearing the loss of a penny. Even less a millionaire fearing a scratch on a penny. Heaven will be that good. God loves you that much. The invitation is to come to the table. If you don't know Him, come to the table. Receive it. You don't know if you're going to get another chance. If you've wandered from Him, remember and return. Taste and see again that He's good. Take a radical step of faith and stop thinking subtle changes are all you need. Come to the table. Taste and see that He's good. Pray with me. Father, thank You for the prophetic word of Isaiah. Thank You for the invitation to Your table. Thank You for love, joy, peace, and hope all encapsulated in the person of Jesus. And thank You that we don't have to be good enough to come to the table. You invite us in. Help us to stop listening and to start hearing. Help us to change our ways for Your ways. Exchange our thoughts for Your thoughts. And just trust You for the next breath. Let us incline our ear to You. Let us hear You. I pray for some people to come home today. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and worship.